Welcome to Daily Daf Different, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. This is Joe Rosenstein, and I am a professor of mathematics at Rutgers University and the author of Sidur 8 Ratzon and Machzor 8 Ratzon. Today we will be studying Tractate Rosh Hashanah, Daf 33, Lamed Gimel. Actually, we actually will begin by concluding the discussion we began yesterday of Halil on Rosh Hashanah. You pointed out that Halil isn't recited on Rosh Hashanah, but we learned the Mishnah which explicitly said that on the Yom Tov of Rosh Hashanah, blowing the shofar is done by the second service leader, whereas the first service leader recites Halil. And the Gemara immediately gave a rationale for this practice, thereby acknowledging that this was indeed the practice. But the next piece of the Gemara, in rejection of the Mishnah and of the initial discussion in the Gemara, insists that this is impossible. The point is that in the early days of the Talmud, it was taken for granted that Halil was recited on Rosh Hashanah, since Rosh Hashanah was a Yom Tov, a festival. However, later in the Talmudic period, Rabbi Abahu says that the Mishnah can't possibly refer to Rosh Hashanah because, quote, is it conceivable that as God sits in the judge's chair looking at the open books of life and death, at that very moment we would be singing this song of praise? End of quote. And it may be that once Rabbi Abahu made that statement in the beginning of the 4th century, Halil was never again recited on Rosh Hashanah. What happened was that between the beginning and the end of the Talmudic era, a new understanding of Rosh Hashanah gained momentum, that Rosh Hashanah was the prelude to Yom Kippur. This was not how Rosh Hashanah was seen in the biblical period, when Rosh Hashanah was likely a day of celebration. This was not how Rosh Hashanah was seen in the period of the Second Temple, when they introduced blowing the shofar and reciting biblical verses of Zichronot and Shofarot to remind ourselves and God of the Covenant. This was not how Rosh Hashanah was seen in the time of the Mishnah, when the main innovation was Malchayot, proclaiming God as ruler of the entire world. In all of these time periods, Rosh Hashanah was not linked to Yom Kippur. This new understanding of Rosh Hashanah as prelude to Yom Kippur is based on the second Mishnah of the first chapter of Tractate Rosh Hashanah, where, after describing the four Rosh Hashanahs, the four new years that we observe each year, the Mishnah notes that, quote, the world is judged four times a year, on Pesach for crops, on Shavuot for fruits of the tree, on the festival, that is Sukkot, for water, and Rosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, all human beings pass before you like troops in formation. 
language that was later incorporated into the Unatanatoka prayer. This Mishnah provides a linkage between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but in the time of the Mishnah, this linkage does not appear to have been significant. For, for example, we saw how the coronation theme was incorporated into the traditional Musaf Amidah, but there is no parallel discussion of inserting the theme of turning, of repentance, of seeking forgiveness, or of judgment into the Musaf Amidah of Rosh, of Rosh Hashanah. There is no proposal to add verses of forgiveness, kaparot, into the Musaf Amidah, although they are present in the Yom Kippur Amidah. It should be noted that a new vision of Yom Kippur was also developing during this period. When the temple stood, the rituals performed by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, provided forgiveness for all sins against God. This forgiveness was a gift to us from God. No action on our part was necessary to obtain this gift, other than fasting and abstaining from work on Yom Kippur. After the temple was destroyed, we had to seek that forgiveness through atonement, through penitence, through tshuva. Instead of being a day of forgiveness, the literal meaning of Yom Kippur, it was becoming a day of atonement. Although the new understanding of Rosh Hashanah did not appear in the liturgy in the time of the Mishnah, the themes that God is examining our deeds on Rosh Hashanah and that the books of life and death are open on Rosh Hashanah were cleverly incorporated into the Rosh Hashanah Amidah. Although almost all of the Zichronot verses refer to God's remembering the covenant, and the closing line of the bracha is Zocher Habrit, God's remembering the covenant, reflecting the original understanding of Zichronot, the opening and closing paragraphs of the Zichronot section focus instead on God's remembering our deeds, quite a different type of Zichronot. From this new perspective, it was also appropriate to add new phrases to the liturgy, such as Zachreinu Lechayim, remember us for life, in places where they don't really belong. We will return to the new relationship between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in a later session, but let us examine the statement of Rabbi Abahu. He evidently thinks of Halel simply as a song of praise but is apparently not aware of why God is being praised in Hallel. The focus of Hallel is that with God's help, our lives can be changed. And in Hallel, we praise God for making that change possible. Hallel provides us with two case studies of how that change can take place. It tells us that whatever difficulties you are having in your life, whatever the source of your distress, if you call on God for assistance, if you ask God for help, that will make a difference. Even if we are skeptical about whether God intervenes directly in our lives, we can comprehend that by connecting ourselves with a power greater than ourselves, we can make it possible for major changes to occur in our lives. If we understand Halil as encouragement to all of us to bring God into our lives, as a message that with God's assistance and support we can change our lives for the better, then it is clearly quite appropriate to recite Hallel on Rosh Hashanah and even on Yom Kippur. So I encourage you to read Hallel carefully, more carefully than Rabbi Abahu did, and consider whether it is appropriate for you to recite Hallel on Rosh Hashanah. Returning now to today's daf, much of the daf is discussion of a Mishnah that appears on the bottom of the previous page. 
This Mishnah lists a number of situations in which you will not be able to hear the shofar. For example, if your shofar is up in a tree, then you're really up a tree. You can't climb the tree to get the shofar on the festival. If your shofar is on the other side of a river, you can't scream across the river to get it on the festival. If your shofar is in a building which collapses, you can't go searching through the rubble on Rosh Hashanah. If your shofar is beyond the permitted traveling distance on the festival, you can't go get it. If you are too weak to walk to the shofar, then you can't hitch a ride. In all of these cases, you just won't get to hear the sound of the shofar. Sad news. You might object to this conclusion and say that hearing the shofar is a commandment in the Torah and therefore is something that you must do. Recall that the commandments are divided into two groups, the positive commandments, each of which involves carrying out an action, and the negative commandments, each of which involves refraining from a certain action. Why should the negative commandment of you shall not do any work activity, trump the positive commandment of hearing the shofar? That's the question that the Talmud asks, and implicitly asks here the broader question of what happens when a positive commandment and a negative commandment are in conflict. But then it ducks the question by saying that in addition to violating the negative commandment against work activity, these efforts to hear the shofar also violate the positive commandment of observing Rosh Hashanah as a day of rest, a Shabbaton. So the positive commandment of hearing the shofar is actually trumped by a combination of a negative commandment and a positive commandment. Hearing the shofar loses by a score of 2 to 1. Sad news. The Mishnah does permit rinsing the shofar with water or wine to cleanse it on Rosh Hashanah and thereby enhance its sound. This would seem to be in the category of fixing utensil which is prohibited. But enhancement is apparently not in the same category as fixing. Since the shofar doesn't really need fixing, it's perfectly usable without the enhancement. Now the Gemara asks a question that I'm sure no one listening to this podcast would ever have considered. May we rinse the shofar with urine? The euphemism in the text is may raglayim, leg water. Apparently, urine must be an effective cleanser for shofar, and perhaps for other things, since they asked the question. But the answer is no. That's just not respectful to this holy instrument. So we're not allowed to do it mitnei kavod. And that applies on weekdays as well as on Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah then notes that if children are trying to blow the shofar, we don't stop them. Indeed, we should tutor them until they learn how to blow it themselves. The Gemara subsequently cites a Brita that says that this applies even on Shabbat. That's rather surprising, because other musical instruments are considered muktzah on Shabbat. That is, we may not even touch them. Apparently, we must conclude that a shofar is not considered an instrument, but a ritual and holy object. The Gemara notes that the language of the Mishnah that we don't stop children from blowing the shofar seems to imply that we do stop women from blowing the shofar. But it quickly notes that there is a brighta which explicitly presents a contradictory view, namely, 
We do not stop either women or children from blowing the shofar on the Yom Tov of Rosh Hashanah. Let's put this conflict in context. Hearing the shofar is a time-bound positive commandment. That is, it is an action that is supposed to be performed at a particular time. Women are generally exempt from performing time-bound positive commandments due to family obligations. May a woman, however, perform that commandment even though she she is exempt from it? There are two answers to this question. Yes and no. And the Gemara points out that it was Rabbi Yehuda who originally said no, and that it was Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon who originally said yes. The Gemara does not resolve the general question, but it seems that the tradition has generally leaned in the yes direction. Today the question is that, that is discussed within the Orthodox community is whether women may wear tefillin. And according to some reports, the objections are less halachic than cultural. That is, many Orthodox women who might consider wearing tefillin would feel uncomfortable doing so, or would feel uncomfortable letting their friends know that they wear tefillin. In 20 years, that is likely to change. And Orthodox women, like spiritually committed non-Orthodox women, will be wearing talit and tefillin without discomfort. Tomorrow, our subject will be the actual blowing of the shofar. Please join us. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Chorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.